the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Planted. I'm Sarah Payan, your host. And today we have Jesus Berola, CEO of Possible, on the show. Jesus, welcome. I'm so excited about talking to you today. Um, I did a lot of reading about you before we did the show today, and you have a lot of really exciting things to share with us. So before we really get into the company, I'd love to hear about your first cannabis experience. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm excited to be here, too. Um, really, my first cannabis uh, experience, I was a little bit more of a late bloomer, if you will. Uh, I, I grew up, I was born and raised in Mexico, and like probably what people probably think it, it Mexico is a very conservative on on uh, on you know quote unquote cannabis is seen as a drug right, right. and uh, when I was growing up and and so I think because of the effects of war on drugs directly to Mexico which has obviously led to cartels and all those other things it's it's just seen as a uh, very dangerous and there but there actually was no differentiation uh, you know in, in Mexico growing up between cannabis, which is, you know, so natural a plant and say something like a hard drug. And so uh, I was, you know, uh, raised up to be very afraid of cannabis. And it wasn't until I came to the States when I was 18 years old that I actually saw, saw cannabis for the first time. So, um, you know, I know that's a long-winded answer, but it was actually offered to me by the father of a friend, which... I thought I was being set up. I thought I was going to get arrested or something. <laughs> I, I'm like, I can't believe, you know, uh, it's actually an adult, a parent, son's there, and he's offered me cannabis. I I, I thought I was on some kind of prank joke or, or being set up, but, but that was it. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's awesome. It's, you know, it's it's always interesting the first time. Um, I have... I have several friends that their families are from Mexico, and one of the things, they said very similar things to me, but then they also said, and I'm wondering if you experienced this, it was very taboo, but at the same time, a couple of them had grandmothers who grew it and kept it in a jar with alcohol under their bed, and they actually used it as a topical because they had leg pain. Yes, from a topical standpoint, Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that is definitely more common. Uh, I mean, frankly, I, I never was around the plant and anybody like smoking it or consuming it in that way, but you're absolutely right. You would always hear of like, uh, you know, more of a, a cream, an ointment, pain medication. You would definitely hear that. Yeah. I remember talking to the friends and they were shocked when they realized what grandma had under the bed. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, they just yeah. thought, you know, so they were just like I just thought it was a home remedy and I was like yeah well you're right that's exactly what it was yeah but it it does show and, that and it was so, oh no I'm sorry I interrupted you no 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 it, I mean for me it was so weird because alcohol is is so widely accepted I mean I you know it was very normal uh, for your parents to know you were out drinking and you were 14 years old and I mean drinking and driving at 15, right? So it's the, you know, looking back on all this now with the context of understanding the plant and the effects, it's just so backwards, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When I was looking at going into 
possible and, and how that started. When I was looking at your bio, I saw that you have a bachelor's in supply chain management. And it's really, it was interesting when I saw that because I, I remember years ago um, when I was one of the chairs of the task force and I was working with you know, people in education, universities, colleges, and explaining to them, I don't think you understand, like, these are jobs that, like, people will start working, actively looking for jobs in supply chain management, all these different areas that have more technical knowledge because of cannabis. And they looked at me incredulously. And when I saw that on your bio, I was like, see? See what happens. Yeah. I mean, I know that you did that prior to being involved in cannabis, but it's just it's it's showing like how people with all this expertise are coming into the field and enriching it and really getting us up to speed to where we should be as an industry. And with that being said, how did possible come to be, and how did you decide to to come work in cannabis? Yes, so. Uh, it actually was founded by uh, a guy by the name of David Bon, who, uh, funny enough, we grew up together. So I've known David since uh, we were probably about eight, nine years old. Uh, so he is a very good friend of mine. His background is in agriculture. And I think the way it really came to be is uh, he, he operates some of the largest organic greenhouse farms uh in Mexico, so more on the tomato and vegetable side. And so when the cannabis business was being formed and, you know, starting to look at that, that it really comes down to it's an agricultural business to be a grower. And uh, he had seen the effects of, you know, high-tech greenhouses in and what that's done for the vegetable market. And so you know, when you looked at the growing methodologies in cannabis traditionally, I think it was not about what was the most efficient, but like how you had to grow it based on the fact that it was illegal. So you either had to, you know, go out to humble, be on the hills, be away, you know, um, from enforcement, or you had to do it in an indoor setting. Uh, those, those, that really is where the, how the plant was being grown, it wasn't necessarily because it's the most efficient way to grow. So you don't see tomatoes being grown in basements, right? Because right. it's just not very efficient. So uh, really, I think it was that vision to say, hey, the best way to grow is a combination of that, which is being able to control your environment, but at the same time, taking advantage of a great growing climate and all the natural resources. So you shouldn't have to produce 100% of your you know, light, which is what you have to do as an indoor grower, you can actually take advantage of natural sunlight. And yes, if you want a higher quality, you have to supplement that with, uh, you know, lighting and CO2 and everything else. But why, why start from zero when, you know, mother nature is already providing a lot of what you need to grow, um, exceptional cannabis. So, so it was, you know, really his vision, and he and I had always talked about being in business together. There, there's a funny story because we actually, the first business that we ever did was together. So we ran a uh, cevicheria in Mexico when we were in our teens. And so, it, it, you know, I think we had always had like the entrepreneurial itch 
and we went our separate ways for a long, long time. So he grew his agricultural business uh, tremendously. I went and worked in supply chain, you know, in the building materials industry. And when this opportunity with, you know, in this new field, and we were obviously both uh, excited about cannabis and wanted to participate and play a hand in, in forming this new industry, it just made sense for us to, to team up and, and try to tackle that. That's that's really cool. I mean, that's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to to do work with somebody who's who's known you throughout the development of, of your, into adulthood. You know, that's like the people who know the stories about what you're like as a kid, and there's that certain trust when you're working with, you know, a childhood friend. And I love the fact that you do the greenhouse because there is something to be said. There's nothing like the sun. When we look at indoor growing, yes, you know, people say, oh, these lights are full spectrum, but we have, we have such a limited knowledge of what full spectrum is with light. I mean, we're constantly, nature is constantly surprising us, you know, with new knowledge, even when we look at the plant with all of the different terpenes and the cannabinoids that are being discovered, it's, we, nature is way more complicated than we give it credit for. And I really, I love the fact yeah. that you combine nature with technology, which sustainability is a huge part of, of Possible's work, correct? No, correct. I mean, uh, most folks don't know, but indoor grow is highly non-sustainable. And when you look at you know, who your average cannabis consumer is, we care about sustainability. And so, uh, you know, I think there's some crazy stats out there for California, like something as high as like 2% of the electric grid is going just to cannabis growing. And you look at states like Massachusetts, they're saying it might be 3 to 4%. And so it's definitely not 3 or 4% of the GDP of Massachusetts. Uh, so it is taking up a lot of energy uh, to grow in an indoor setting. And I think, you know, Energy is not cheap either, so that also translates into higher prices. So, I think as the industry evolves, and obviously we're seeing it now with you know price compression in the market, I think having the efficiencies of being able to take advantage of natural resources, which ultimately reduces your cost, and I and I would argue increases uh, the quality of your product. I think is the is the best mix of both worlds. Yeah. I agree. I remember when I first started working in the dispensary and we would have greenhouse and outdoor grown cannabis. And at that point in time, I was very, very new to everything. And so I always mm -hmm. felt that out that indoor was superior to sun grown. But what I didn't realize was that the conditions were so much more controlled and that people who were doing greenhouse and sun grown at that point in time maybe weren't up to speed on the best ways to grow it. Because when I had my first sun-grown flower that was just so well-grown, it blew me away, the difference between that and what I had been smoking with indoor flower. It was, it, and that was mm -hmm. what turned me on to the fact that you, get, you, you can get really interesting cannabinoid content that the flavor was different and the effects were more nuanced in my experience. Yes, and I I would 100% agree with you. I, I mean, I think uh, the effects of sun-grown flower are incredible. Uh, and there is a happy medium, you know, so you talked about supply chain. I think the complexity of that is that, because I, I agree, I love outdoor flower, 
the hard part is that you cannot get year-round supply. So that is one of the setbacks, right? You have one harvest a year. Um, And so so then it becomes as fantastic as it is. It's very hard to power a year-round brand and build a brand around outdoor because you have a limited shelf life on the product. And so that is another thing that I think Greenhouse is able to tackle, that you can maintain year-round production. have all the benefits of, you know, the sun, be able to control your environment like an indoor, and then have a cost curve that's going to land somewhere in the middle. And so, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I'm a huge believer in greenhouse uh, technology, and obviously that's what we're, we're trying to do. Yeah, and when you're talking about brands being able to sustainably provide flour throughout the year, that's also part of some of, of your mission is empowering other brands, right? Yes, so really possible is set up as a B2B vehicle. So we know what we know and we know what we don't know. And uh, I think common mistake is say, hey, I want to, everybody says vertically integrated. And sure, there's a lot of uh, advantages in doing that, but there's also a lot of complexity because you're trying to run four or five different businesses if you set that way. And obviously capital is very, difficult to come by in cannabis and everything is very expensive to develop. And so we felt as opposed to watering down and trying to uh, be the best at five different businesses, we wanted to really build a team of experts around what we understood to be our core strength, which was, which was the ag and tech aspect of, of being a grower and focus all our efforts into becoming the best greenhouse grower that we could. And so we, you know, obviously there needs to be a way to commercialize, uh, you know, our outputs. And that's really where our brand partners come into play. So we, we have, we empower about 15 of the largest brands in California that we work with. So we, you know, they are an extension of possible. So we sit down with brands, we plan everything from what genetics they want to put into the jars and what volumes, uh, and we package and we, help them build products up to their specifications to put into the market. So um, our success as a business is very tied into the success of the brands that we support. Um, and it is seen as a very much of a partnership. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's amazing when you look into all the different ways of doing business in cannabis and all the different permits and everything that comes into play. And that, that can be really really overwhelming or even discourage people from getting into the industry. So to have you doing this work and, and I, would I be correct in saying that this would be classified as, is the white labeling of products? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it, it is. And I know, you know, that term sometimes has negative connotations, but I, you know, I don't see it that way in, uh, I would rather partner with the best brands that are marketing experts that have connections that have built the following. And I would rather focus my efforts in being the best possible grower and builder of product that I can for them. Um, you, you know, you mentioned one other important aspect of that, which is the licensing. I mean, one of the benefits actually of working with, with possible is just, we work with a lot of brands that don't have a license. So under an asset like model. So if you us as the licensed cultivator, you know, selling to a licensed distributor that is ultimately selling it to a licensed uh, retailer and, and really 
Uh, a lot of the brands operate under the licensing of all the partnerships set up through a, throughout the supply chain to reach the consumer. And, and so that saves a brand a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of complexity and having to go through that licensing process. And, and actually, it is what is allowing those brands to penetrate into multiple markets uh, which ultimately, I think, how the that's how the successful brands will be built. Like, you know, folks uh, will want to build nationwide brands, and and the fastest and most effective way to do that is through, you know, kind of an asset like model, like the one that possible can power. Yeah, well, it, what it's like what they say, you know, the wise person surrounds himself with experts. Why? If you're not a grower, but you have an amazing vision for a product and you're really good at the outreach and actually creating the idea and the lifestyle and the brand around it, why wouldn't you pick somebody who has more expertise in actually creating that product to fulfill your vision? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, uh, I think sometimes ego gets in the way. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But uh, uh, but no, I I think we're very focused in in, in doing what uh, what is our core vision, which is to try to really push the boundaries on ag, bring the latest technology, become more sustainable, and ultimately have the planning and production, and uh, to be able to power our brand partners. And and when we're getting into that, we we had a a brief conversation before we started recording today. And um, you were talking about that you don't have your own brand flower, but that you're looking at possibly doing that in the future. And just about the visibility in the cannabis industry, that especially with the fact that there really aren't a lot of prominent Latino brands on the market. Yeah, we see that as a as an opportunity, and uh, you know this. I'm born and raised in Mexico. So is basically uh, most of the folks that work here are, are Latino. So that goes from, you know, C-suite down to everybody working in the greenhouse and in the packaging facility. And, you know, we've been waiting for a brand that speaks to us as Latinos in cannabis. And we, we frankly haven't seen it. And when you look at industries like, alcohol or you look at industries like beer you have a huge you know very big brands whether it be a uh, jose cuervo or corona or modelo right that everybody has heard of and like sit in the top 10 of beer brands or, or alcohol brands and when you look at cannabis in california i think the highest uh like the most sold Latino brand, and I would even argue that it's not as, you know very Latino focused. I think is ranked 151. So I see that as a very uh, a very wide open lane. And uh, when I've talked to our brand partners, they all they all mention it. Like, yeah, we see that as an opportunity, but we don't have the authenticity to talk to that customer as you know uh, you know non Latino people in cannabis and they've all kind of said, you should absolutely go for it. You guys are, you know, kind of who we think of when we think of Latinos in cannabis. So you guys should absolutely chase it. Yeah. Well, and when we're looking at like standards, because, you know, we, we see, we all see the world through our own lenses and 
and, and this is going to be this is this is maybe a strange comparison, so bear with me. Um, <laughs> but when I worked in civil rights, my boss, um, the executive director, she had come from MALDEF, um, the Mexican American Legal Fund, and she was telling me that, you know. Because of the way people see different things and the, the way they, they, the lenses through which they see the world, a lot of times when you're not necessarily a Caucasian organization, you can be seen differently and held to different standards, which is why she said that at her job back then, everybody had to come to work in like a suit and men had to wear ties because they were like, we want to be taken seriously. We're, you know, professionals. We do all this stuff. But it, when she came to work with us, she was like, it's really nice to be able to have, to let your hair down and have some casual days and not be held to such high standards because you're constantly trying to prove something. Do you see that in the cannabis sphere? I know we're a, we're a lot more relaxed as an industry, but especially as we start to see larger companies coming in that have had outside interests and we're seeing MSOs and we're seeing just like that corporate mindset. Do you see there being challenges for everybody's lens to be represented in the industry? Um, you know what? I think uh, I have seen, um, I, I don't think it's exclusion on that sense, more on the demographic. I think the biggest exclusion is really the access to capital. And so, yeah. uh, I I see that as it's such a huge barrier to entry in cannabis. I mean, the amount of uh, money it takes to, to start a cannabis business, let's just say a grow, it's so acid heavy, it's significant. And so that, ex you know, naturally excludes, you know, a lot of the minorities, in yeah. it, right? Like, and so we talk about it being, you know, a wealth creation opportunity for minorities, but Nobody talks about, well, where is that capital going to come from for those minorities to participate in the industry? And, like, that's, I think, the biggest question. It's not going to come from banks. <laughs> you know? It's not, you know, there's no access to, to capital in that way. So uh, that, that, is, uh, that is what I see. It's like there's a lack of representation of, of minorities, and I think it, it's not because I think folks in the industry don't want it. It's because... Uh, at the end of the day, it requires so much capital, and you know that that unfortunately typically doesn't <laughs> doesn't sit in uh, in minorities' hands. Yeah, yeah well, that, it it speaks to the fact that we really do need to lower the barrier for entry. I mean, it's that was you know it seemed like that was initially in our pie in the sky ideas what you know Prop sixty four was supposed to be all about was right getting people in the door, but now we've got so many people who have actually left this market and gone back to the traditional market because they can't survive in a way that, well, we've been talking sustainability that is sustainable. So, yeah. you yep. know, thank goodness that there are things like credit unions and things like that starting to get involved, but I know we have a long, long way to go. Long way to go. And I mean, I don't, I mean, and I don't have an answer, and I don't know that you know necessarily anybody does, because even when there's been carve-outs on licensing for social equity members per se, okay, well now you got a license, uh, you still need 
a lot of money to be able to do something with that license. So you, you know, you're basically just saying, okay, well, you want the license, but then you got to turn around and sell it because you still need, you know, millions of dollars to do something with it. And so even the good ideas fall short. And, right. and I think that that's the frustrating part. Yeah, it is frustrating. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of loopholes that end up benefiting other people. Like what we've been seeing here and I'm, I'm in the Bay area. And so, you know, you see Mm -hmm. equity operators that have been taken advantage of by larger companies where they want their permits. But then when it comes down to it, the ownership isn't there and they don't really have a say in how the business is run. They're just kind of there. And I don't, it's, it's really troubling. It is troubling. And I mean, I've seen, uh, you know, cities that have said, okay, well, we're going to protect social equity members. And then, and so they're not able to be diluted, uh, you know, which is, again, a great idea. But then how do you raise money for your project if you cannot get to like, it it doesn't become a very promising proposition for an investor, right? And so, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's such a complicated uh problem to solve and it's worth solving (laughs) so i hope that a lot of smart people get together and find something that does work i just haven't seen anything work up until this point i mean uh, you're in the bay area i i had a uh, i met yesterday with the folks at uh, the success center there that are helping social equity members uh launch businesses and you know i was talking to them about how to launch a brand but you know even that is complicated because even when you go on asset light model and you partner with somebody like us and, and there's still a lot of capital required to market and, you know, launch a brand even, in, even under that scenario. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a complicated problem, but one worth solving and, and hopefully, uh, there's good ideas that come into play that, that, that can help get more representation in the industry for for minorities. I I hope so. I actually had uh, Miss Angela from Success Centers on, I believe it was last year. I I love her. She's wonderful. Um, She's awesome. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things is like, you know, even those those organizations being able to get technical support, it's an interesting conundrum because you have like, you know, private – private practitioners that are, you know, looking for grant money to support these groups, which, you know, isn't necessarily a bad thing. But one thing I was really excited about was my old organization that I used to work with, uh, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights of the San Francisco Bay Area. They have a program called Legal Services for Entrepreneurs. And through that, we were, and I always say we, even though I haven't been there in a while, but I'm still very much in touch with my colleagues. It's we. It's we. You're doing... You know, <laughs> we we, we got to keep it. We, um, but you know, it's reaching out to them and saying, Hey, you know, now that we're in a certain space where we can start having conversations around cannabis businesses, because, you know, back when I was working at LCCR, you, you couldn't touch cannabis with a 10 foot pole, but now that's changing. And it's like, how do we utilize these nonprofits that are, that are not only able to support this, but the any sort of funding that might go in to support them would actually be in turn coming back into the community to support social justice issues. So 
I reached out to them to ask, hey, you know, these pro bono attorneys that are working in the legal services for entrepreneurs program, because that's that's what it is. It's like the big firms have pro bono attorneys and they're like, we want to help people mm -hmm. thrive in their businesses. You know, are there any that are interested in helping equity applicants? And I was so pleasantly surprised to hear that attorneys had actually been reaching out to them saying, hey, if you have any cannabis businesses in the LSE wow. program, we want to help. And so, you know, it's like there's more more of these organizations are starting to feel comfortable and, and excited about doing the work. So I think we need to really do more outreach and link up with them and get these people talking. Cause I, I got Miss Angela talking to them and they were going to do some, some events together. And, and that just, I just feel like it makes perfect sense because then you're getting this, I don't know, excuse me, this sounds a little hippy dippy, but more of a perpetuosity circle where, yeah, you know, these groups are, they're not just taking the grant money and working on their own projects that have nothing to do with equity and social justice they're continuing the work and it's not only going into cannabis, but in other areas that benefit everybody around social justice, especially our, absolutely, yeah, especially the populations who need it the most. Cause we, it's, it's amazing. I was just, um, my last guest that I was, I was talking to Otha Smith. We were, we were talking about how, um, when I worked in civil rights was when Obama was elected and, it, we were very excited. Everybody got the morning off to watch the inauguration. But when we got back, what we found was, you know, our development department was having problems getting grants because people were like, oh, well, you know, the fight's over. Now we're going to give to other organizations that need it more than civil rights. And we were like, oh, no. no, no, no. It's we not done. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we have so much. Certainly reason. not done. It seemed like uh, uh, we went a little backwards since then uh, recently. So or mm -hmm. at least it feels that way sometimes. Um, no, but I, I actually think everybody has to play a part, right? So, uh, uh, I mean, starting with the consumer. I mean, we should support brands that uh, you know are from their community that have a social equity component. You know, and in any way, I mean, even if it's not uh, owned by social equity, that support causes on social equity. And the dispensary has to play a part and say, we are going to position social equity brand in our shelf, et cetera, et cetera, all throughout the chain. So um, I think, uh, you know, hopefully that, uh, but it all, I think, has to start with the consumer dollar. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely have to to vote with your dollars. And I think it's also really important to one of the things that we've been talking a lot about for a few years now is people actually having conversations about their cannabis use. Like when we were going into legalization and, you know, there were, a, I was still working in the dispensary then and having people in tears on the other side of the bar being like, I can't afford what I need to create relief for myself. Mm -hmm. And one of, or just being pissed off at the prices and the availability of product. And one yeah. of the things that, you know, yeah. I used to say was this is, you know, it's kind of like stoner civics 
101. It's just like, you know, when we passed legalization, people were showing up at our front door being like, oh, can we purchase now? It's like, no, you got to wait a year. Well, why? Well, Mm -hmm. you pass it and then you create the foundation, right? Then you create the program. Nobody does anything till anything's passed. But then when it's passed and you don't like what you're seeing, it's up to the public to talk to our public officials and policymakers and say, you know, I pay taxes. I'm, you know, a productive member of society. Uh, I use cannabis and I vote. So mm-hmm. what you well, going to do? It's like what's, yeah, I, I mean, and, uh, you know, you look at things like dispensaries and two thirds of the city, even in a state like California, that is overwhelmingly a approving of cannabis and you know it's been legalized here recreational for how long now and two-thirds of the city still don't have a dispensary because yeah. you know i think that, that that's such a weird part of it where people say oh you know but it still carries that stigma where people say oh no i'm for legal cannabis and i want to be able to go to the dispensary i just don't want to go to the dispensary in my neighborhood put it in the neighborhood next door <laughs> and uh you know i, I still I, you know there's still a lot of work to be done and I've kind of taken that stigma out. And I mean, frankly, thank you for all the work that you're doing on the education and, and, uh, you know, on the politics side too, it's super important and very needed. Oh, thank you. You know, I just, I feel so incredibly, I feel so strongly about that. And especially when, you know, a lot of our policies are based around stigma, not fact. And, and just even mm-hmm. through the education side, when you are able to educate somebody and they're able to successfully use it, and then all of a sudden they're so mad that, you know, they've been held in place by this stigma, like whether they were kept away from relief because they thought that they would be doing a bad thing and they've tried every single drug that they possibly could that's, you know, safe enough for them to use to help with their pain and then they find that this helps. Or just, you know, people just even not even going that extreme on the medical side, but people just thinking, hey, I found relief and this is way better for me than having a couple glasses of wine at night and it's not really a big deal. And the person who works behind the bar is a really friendly, nice person. And they obviously do not let children in because I was mad the last time I forgot my ID and I'm well over 21 and they still wouldn't let me through the door. It's like it's like dispelling of the myths to get people to understand that we've been subject to, you know, a lot of falsehoods to control a situation. And um, and also just. Yeah. yeah. And and, and talking about whether we look at it as medicinal or recreational, it's the substance that creates a reaction in the body and that, you know, everyone's different, like just creating that the way to look at it critically and know that it doesn't work for everybody and, and not everybody is able to consume phytocannabinoids, but it that doesn't make it a bad thing. It's about figuring out what works well yeah. for you as an individual. Yeah. And I, you know, on the medicinal aspect, I know you talked about access for folks that necessarily can't afford it. I do, I do got to give a shout out to an organization that we've worked with before called Dear Cannabis oh. that uh, does go out and uh, provide cannabis patients that cannot afford it. So we've worked with them in the past, and I think they, they you know, it's a phenomenal organization that, that people should be aware of. Yeah, Dear Cannabis is wonderful. They have they have really grown leaps and strides with, 
you know, their program started out just the other year. It was It was so small, and they've grown in the way they've partnered with people. It's beautiful. I, I love the fact that so many more people are understanding the need for that and that, you know, the compassion programs need to come in all shapes and forms from, you know, organizations like Dear Cannabis that touch on, you know, they do large drops for compassion patients. Like they cover a lot of patients to like the dispensary on the corner that just has like a small program for their immediate community. I mean, we really creating that access is incredibly important because I know like when I was going through cancer and, you know, and I still, I, I wasn't working, but I had a job with benefits and, um, it's incredibly expensive to be sick. And then if you've been critically mm-hmm. ill for a really long time and you are just solely living off of, you know, the government benefits, which thank goodness we have short-term and long-term disability, mm-hmm. but it's still not enough for mm-hmm. people to live, especially in California and especially in the Bay. Mm-hmm. It's so expensive, yeah. It is. No, I mean, and, and it's, um, you know, I, I think maybe I... You know, I voiced some of the frustrations, but but overall, when you look at it and you hear of, you know, well, frankly, folks like yourself, organizations like Dear Cannabis, uh, uh, the Success Center, there are a lot of heroes in the industry too that are pushing things forward. And and overall, I think that when you step back, I mean, it's hard when you're in the business and you're running up against, you know. Uh, regulatory, you know, walls and compliance laws all day, every day. But when you step back, the industry has come such a long way and, and, and you see the trend. So yeah. that which is in the right direction. Yeah, there are a lot of people who have really good hearts doing a lot of great work. And I think it is really important to to hold, you know, especially like, you know, groups like Dear Cannabis, Weed for Warriors, like really like highlighting what they're doing so people understand that not only will they support them, but maybe they'll be inspired to do good work as well because it, it is all hands on mm-hmm. deck. And, yes. And looking at like, just thinking about like, I was, oh, well, I was thinking about the legacy aspect of, you know, because we did, you know, come from the critically and chronically ill. This is how this whole thing started around legalization but then there's also the legacy around genetics. And you guys have been doing some really interesting work with cannabis genetics, right? Yes, and, and, and frankly, it's through partnerships uh, from folks in, in the legacy market that have been developing uh, strains for a long time. So we, uh, we're very proud to form those relationships and works with people like uh, Mean Gene from Freeboard Selections and Skunk Tech and J Trees from Diesel Cartel. Um, that that really we formed uh, a relationship to uh, because there is a level of trust involved in sharing genetics yeah. to be able to put some of those genetics into the legal market. You know, at scale to to really get people to try these fantastic uh, genetics that they've created over many, many years, and, and, and folks have not had an opportunity to try. That's so exciting. I, I can't wait to, I can't wait to try some of those. That's, I mean, that's the stuff that, like, back in the 215 days, we used to get such amazing 
genetics from growers and just like mm-hmm. the bud profiles, the colors, the scents. Of course, I'm totally spoiled because when I was behind the bar, we were we were still measuring out. And there's just really nothing like opening that jar and being able to let somebody smell exactly what you're going to send home with them. Um, but I, I, it's, I just am so happy to hear that you're working with them to preserve genetics and get that out so that people can, can share in that. Because quite honestly, there are some superstars in the market, but in a lot of ways, I feel like we've been kind of living in the land of mids for a while. Yes, yes, for sure. And, you know, people talk about migrating folks from traditional market to the legal market. And, like, the truth is that, you know, today some of the best genetics still are only found in the legacy market. And so if you really want to bring consumers into the legal market, you have to provide a pathway where those genetics can enter, you know, the legal market. And, again, the barriers to entry, which we talked about earlier, are so steep that unless you lower that barrier entry and you make those connections, you know, we're not going to get there. And ultimately, you know, I think it's, it's where we've got to head. Right. And even if you have those amazing genetics in stores, if you're not growing them in a sustainable way, how accessible are they for people? Mm-hmm. And, and in scale, right. It, uh, you want to cover California on a strain, like, well, you know, you need scale to do that, and uh, which is which is uh, not hard, which is not easy. So, yeah, um, you know, I think I think uh, you know part of that is, uh, you know, there's there's good act, there's a lot of good actors in the industry. There's also a lot of bad actors, and so a lot of those uh, folks have been burned, right? And so they're they're also within cannabis. I think there needs to be a bridge built between legacy market and legal market and to kind of work together, right? Like I think uh, there's a common goal of, of getting people, uh, you know, to embrace the plant that is a shared mission, but, uh, but, but there's a little bit of a bridge to, to build there as well. Yeah, there is. Well, I know like some colleagues and I in the past have joked that, Yes, like joking, not joking, that wish there was a way to have like an unofficial list of the people that are not good actors that you can avoid so that you don't have that bad experience. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there are so many wonderful people that just want to collaborate and work and and see everybody thrive. But, you know, all you have to do is have one bad experience that that'll ruin your your business, your livelihood. Mm Yep. So looking into the future, what are, what are you seeing and what are you excited about? Um, well, I mean, I, <laughs> I am excited definitely about the launch of the Uma brand. We just broke ground as well with the new phase of our project. So I, I talked about wanting to build you know, the farm of the future with the latest technology. So we've been working on designing and getting approval and then ultimately funding to build uh, the next phase of our project, which is, you know, a very high-tech glass, low semi-closed system with a lot of technology in it. And so that construction is 
finally broken ground after many, many years. So it is uh, very exciting for us to take that, that leap as a business. That's awesome. It, it, to me, everything that you're doing, it just seems like your growing methods are going to be the footprint for the future to inspire other people to create sustainable farming practices. Thank you. If, if people want to get a hold of you and follow you on social media, how would they do that? Um, so they can go through our website, uh, www.possibleproject, spelled P-O-S-I-B-L, project.com, all one word, or on Instagram, same handle, uh, possible, P-O-S-I-B-L, project uh, is our handle. Awesome. Uh, there, there's actually... I would I would invite people to follow. We've got a lot of great content, so we're we're building an educational series that tackles all the different processes at the farm. So it's been in the works here for the last like uh, five months. So that is quickly going to be launching uh, in social media. So we're excited to kind of share some of our knowledge and our practices uh, with people. That's awesome, and I know. I'm going to ask you a question, and if it's no, that's completely okay because I understand. I know that sometimes with when you're growing for other companies, that is kept secret because they want to have their own standalone brand. But if people wanted to try your flower, are there brands that you've that you've partnered with that they can look out for? Yeah, absolutely. And so I would say there's definitely. Uh, brands on both sides of the spectrum, there's brands that actually do look to highlight the farm as well, that that want to play kudos uh, to the folks that help uh, help them grow. So an example would be Union Electric, who is all about um, showcasing the farm and telling the story of, you know, why they curate these strains and these specific farms. So Union Electric would be, you know, a brand that that, that we uh, that we do a lot for. Oh, that's awesome! I'm I'm going to keep an eye out for them. I'd really. Where are they? Are they distributed in South? Are they throughout California, or where are they distributed? Yeah, through, yeah, throughout yeah, throughout California. Awesome! Throughout California. I'm going to check them out because I really. I really want to check out your flower. I'm I'm so excited about this, and I'm really really excited to see what you do in the future. I, it's it's yeah. I love I love innovation and and just the your thoughtful approach just really I'm just so impressed. Yeah, and I, actually I'll I'll throw another brand out there. Cheech and Chong is a, is another brand that we support, uh, which is a. Uh, which is a crown achievement for us, right? To have somebody that probably sits in the Mount Rushmore of cannabis, right? Uh, and being able to power their brand, so that, that, that that's cool. That's really cool. Well, you know, it's funny. I was I was seeing that um, that show that uh, Cheech was doing with Don Johnson that they were doing a, a a new. I don't I don't know. I don't think it was a series, but maybe they were just doing like a one off on it and. He was, mm-hmm. you know, Don's trying to get Cheech to work with him again, and he's working in a dispensary. And apparently, Willie Brown is at the counter <laughs> during that episode. <laughs> That's like way to go, Cheech. <laughs> I have to catch that. Yeah, I I haven't checked it out yet, but I was reading about it, and it just made me chuckle. And then also just to have like to have Willie Brown standing there at the counter purchasing something that that's that's pretty funny too. Although. You know, I've I've actually worked with 
a former SF mayor, uh, Art Agnos, is a huge, a huge uh, believer in medical cannabis since he started using it in his 80s. So I think that, you know, conversation is normalization and to have, you know, beloved figures actually embracing it is a huge step for us, too. Agree. Um, thank you so much for, for being with me today. It's just a pleasure to talk with you and learn more about it. And, you know, as as things come up and, and as you're developing more things with brands, I'd love to have you back on to continue the conversation. I'd love to. I, I very much enjoyed it. Thank you very much for all the work that you do, too, on the education. Oh, thank side. you. Thank you so much. Well, you know, hey, we're... It's it's a like they say better together, right? We're all we're all pitching in to make this not only a better industry but a better movement, and hopefully a lot of the work that we do to change the way we do business, look at cannabis, can filter out into other things in the world. We have a unique opportunity that we really need to to take advantage of and create action. Uh, talking about it is a wonderful thing, but talking to somebody who's actually creating the action is is just it's it's priceless so thank you and for people out there who want to follow planted we are on instagram facebook and twitter on instagram and twitter we are planted with sarah on facebook we are planted with sarah pion our website is www.plantedwithsarah and you can listen to planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts we are on Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon, Google, and Apple. Until next time, everyone, it's a crazy world out there. Stay safe, wear your mask, wash your hands, be kind to one another, and most importantly, stay curious. Until next time, everyone, take care.